The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled New Directions in Kinase Inhibition in Systemic Lupus Erythematosus, Emerging Evidence from Copenhagen. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash XJG860. Downloadable slides are also available. Hello and welcome to this educational program. I'm going to update you a little bit about some of the new data that's come in from the UR meeting in Copenhagen about uh, kinase inhibitors uh, for lupus. We all know that lupus is a complex heterogeneous autoimmune disease and that death rates can vary as well as uh, accumulation of chronic organ damage based on race, ethnicity, geography, socioeconomic status, and many features intrinsic to the patient and their uh, varying immune disorders, uh, which we have yet to fully understand. Uh, Lupus is also associated with notable impacts on quality of life, uh, even in patients where uh, the overall prognosis and lifespan may be closer to normal. The standard of care for lupus has been slowly improving. Um, We now have three treatments that have passed rigorous FDA thresholds for approval, uh, which are belimumab, anifrolumab, and buclosporin. And there are many other targeted biologics that we have become more familiar using in clinic, although they're not approved due to an inadequate evidence base. However, even with optimal treatments, what we have today, many lupus patients have short periods of quiescence, if at all, Uh, and some we can never really get down to a very low disease activity state. But we know that getting down to a low disease activity state is necessary to prevent cumulative damage uh, to the organs and premature mortality. Kinases are proteins with a key role in immune regulation. Uh, They are signaling proteins, and they transfer information um, that comes into a cell Uh, down to many deep cellular processes that results in uh, gene expression and protein expression and and immunity. Uh, So they are definitely a potential therapeutic target for lupus. Now, our current standard of care is uh, basically learned um, uh, by empiric methods, Uh, but I think most physicians agree that hydroxychloroquine if possible, should be background therapy for all lupus patients. Uh, We know that hydroxychloroquine use is associated with reduction in flares, reduction in organ damage, reduction in um, adverse lipid profiles, reduction in risk for thrombosis, um, and actually triples mycophenolate mofetil response in lupus nephritis. Uh, There's also an improvement in survival in some studies. So, Also, hydroxychloroquine is quite effective at treating um, a certain degree of acute, mild, or moderate lupus symptoms. Uh, But it should be remembered that the the anti-malarials may have a slow onset in achieving control. So you have to be a little bit patient with it. Uh, But in a patient who can tolerate waiting, it's great if you can avoid the use of steroids and just treat some of these mild or moderate symptoms with hydroxychloroquine. Furthermore, uh, as mentioned about the mycophenolate mofetil, hydroxychloroquine is, uh, there's some evidence that it can also serve as a valuable adjunct to many other treatments. Unfortunately, um, we still rely to a great deal on, uh, of, on the use of prednisone, 
And we know that prednisone is directly or indirectly responsible for a, a large percentage of organ damage over 15 years. This slide is showing you um, the degree, the numbers of patients relative to each other that, uh, that, uh, that develop organ damage in different uh, organs. And as you can see, um, that it varies, but it's unacceptable in any organ. We have an algorithm provided uh, to us from Dr. Worth's group uh, for treating skin manifestations of lupus or cutaneous lupus, which also includes uh, mucosal lesions. Uh, so, you know, she recommends you start with patient education because sun avoidance and, and sun protection actually has an impact on the outcomes of, of a great percentage of rashes and lupus. So that's important to start with. Uh, at that point, if you have localized disease, topicals may work. Uh, and if not, then an antimalarial such as hydroxychloroquine uh, may be all that the patient needs. So if you get a good response with those um, relatively safe interventions, then uh, you would want to just maintain the patient and not get into all of the other uh, choices that are a little more problematic, especially when used over a long period of time. Uh, patients with widespread or severe skin disease might, however, want to go directly to those other options. And of course, if you have a poor response to uh, topicals and or hydroxychloroquine, um, you're going to want to think about some of these other ideas. So if you have a poor response to topicals and, uh, and hydroxychloroquine, you could consider adding another antimalarial, such as quinacridone, if it's available to you, which it is less and less around the world. Uh, or you could change hydroxychloroquine to chloroquine, which has a higher incidence of eye toxicity, but um, you know may add something uh, to the to the uh, potency of what you're doing. Um, and you could continue quinacridone if you had it with the chloroquine. Uh, at which point we do have to consider immune suppressants. So you can consider methotrexate, mycophenolate mofetil, isothioprine, uh, dapsone, retinoids, and even thalidomide or, or other derivatives of thalidomide, uh, which are becoming more available. Uh, all of those treatments um, can be well tolerated and can be quite effective. So uh, we do use them and we do think about them in patients with more severe disease or refractory disease. By the way, I think I forgot to mention calcineurin inhibitors. Uh, particularly, even in the mild patients, they can be used topically and they're quite safe to use. Um, for musculoskeletal and other manifestations of lupus, um, which um, are, relatively speaking, uh, a little less common, but certainly do occur in over a, a large clinic, you're going to see them a lot. Um, we do still use NSAIDs, although they can be quite toxic when used long term. Um, we certainly still do use glucocorticoids, uh, and they're always our friend when we want to get out of trouble fast. And if the patient needs to be better fast for reasons that have to do with how they're living their life, uh, we can always make someone better with uh, glucocorticoids. I should say almost always, but pretty much almost, almost always. Um, but at this point, we're now using a drug that we're not happy continuing forever, so we might want to consider the use of purine inhibitors such as methotrexate, azathioprine, or mycophenolate mofetil, or the pyrimidine inhibitor leflunamide. Leflunamide being more long-acting, I generally would save that as a second-string agent uh, for lupus because when you want to get rid of it, it's kind of hard to do without some fairly nasty interventions. 
Um, and then we have two approved biologics uh, that can be used, belimumab, which has been uh, approved since 2011 and uh, can be quite effective, but very much like hydroxychloroquine can have a, a late onset of efficacy. So in a patient where you can buy some time with other agents and then maybe taper them later, belimumab is a very safe and often very effective choice. Anafrolimab uh, has been approved more recently. Uh, it targets the uh, interferon alpha-beta receptor. So it's basically inhibiting signals from all of the type 1 interferons. Uh, there is a somewhat increased incidence of herpes zoster with this drug, uh, but in clinical trials, it actually had a reasonable safety profile. So when you're not getting a response to um, uh, other agents, uh, this is definitely something that can now be considered for the treatment of lupus. Here are the ACR recommendations for the treatment of lupus nephritis. And I'm going to start right now and say they're out of date. They're almost 10 years old. Um, and even the ULAR recommendations, which are more recent, have not really added much to them, but we already know that uh, probably single-agent therapy is not optimal for nephritis. Uh, proven by the fact of all these clinical trials where uh, uh, investigational agents have been added to one agent in the background, and people do better. And it's not just one of them. So at this point, I think we have to consider whether it's ever optimal to use only one agent for nephritis. But these recommendations allow you to choose between MMF and cyclophosphamide. And without grade A evidence, perhaps MMF is preferred in patients of African descent, but that is not grade A evidence. And uh, I think it's uh, becoming old-fashioned to think of people in terms of their race instead of their immune pathology uh, and, and could be uh, not optimal um, for people who already suffer from health disparities to be classified by race, which is not a very uh, uh, um, precise way of classifying what's going on in the immune system. You could switch to the other one if you chose one and it didn't work. I would not do that these days. I would definitely by then go ahead and add something. And what, what's being recommended 10 years ago and still pretty up-to-date is you would add either rituximab or calcineurin inhibitors. Rituximab, of course, is not approved for lupus. Uh, and we now have a calcineurin inhibitor that is, which is voclosporin. Uh, but you can also add belimumab because belimumab has, uh, and I'll show you the data in a minute, has been tested and approved for lupus nephritis. Here are the results of the voclosporin phase three trial. Remember, this is a calcineurin inhibitor. And uh, you can see that uh, it had it met its primary endpoint of renal response at 52 weeks and all of its secondary endpoints. So it had very strong data for efficacy. Uh, there is always an issue of toxicity with calcineurin inhibitors, but this one uh, has some data to suggest that it may be a little safer to use than other calcineurin inhibitors because um, it does not require blood level monitoring uh, and has a little bit of a more stable um, metabolism. And belimumab, of course, was first approved for general lupus in 2011, as I said. Uh, and there's a self-injectable subcutaneous formulation that was improved in 2017. And now, as of December 2020, has been approved for lupus nephritis. Uh, so uh, 10 milligrams a kilogram per kilogram of belimumab added to standard therapy, demonstrated superior efficacy uh, when compared to placebo with standard therapy. 
the standard therapy in this trial was either cyclophosphamide or MMF, which was according to the ACR recommendations. And uh, at week 104, which is a, a nice long trial, um, this efficacy was sustained. Uh, and there's even more long-term data that uh, this is this uh, adding belimumab may give you an edge. Now, anaphrolimab is that antibody to the type 1 interferon receptor that I mentioned before. And here's some of the data from the phase 3 trials. Um, there was also a phase 2b trial that showed, um, you know, pretty remarkable efficacy. In fact, one of the phase 3 trials did not meet its primary endpoint, um, which was the SRI4, meaning the SLEED-A got better, the bilag didn't get worse, and... Uh, uh, the physician's global assessment did not get worse by any uh, significant amount. Uh, that's sort of the definition of that endpoint. Uh, now, what does that really mean? It just really means that something got better on the SLE day that made it better, uh, but that other organs were getting worse. So that was a, a kind of a robust endpoint, even though it has its flaws. Um, so if looking at the totality of data, you could see that... Uh, that anaphrolamed met many endpoints in both trials. But in the first trial, um, this was an exploratory uh, outcome measure because, unfortunately, um, in the original um, definition of the endpoints, if you use non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, we're talking about one uh, 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 ibuprofen. Um, if, you used, if you used anything, you became a non-responder. Uh, so I think that was a little bit too stringent and uh, knocked out an awful lot of responders. So what I'm showing you here is actually the exploratory endpoints after they uh, eliminated that particular definition, a part of the definition of response. And now we're going to talk about the kinase inhibitors. The most ubiquitous are the Janus kinase inhibitors. What's a kinase? A kinase is just a protein that puts a phosphorus on another protein. It's called phosphorylation. And when it does that, it helps transmit messages into the cell and out of the cell and around the cell. Uh, so that's how they do it. They just put a phosphorus on another protein, and then it's almost like the game of secrets where that protein is going to go and tell another protein what to do. Eventually, you're often going to get a manufacturer of new RNA, which makes new proteins, and this is uh, intricately bound up in how we get immunity and inflammation going on in patients. So here we are uh, looking at all these um, proteins, and they're going through this um, cell membrane, which is going across the slide. So you see they've got outer portions in the cell membrane and inner portions. And the kinases that we're talking about right now are all on the inside of the cell, uh, beyond the inner part of the cell membrane. So Another protein is, is receiving a signal from outside, transmitting it down, and this causes this phosphorylation uh, process, and these kinases are uh, making these signals get transduced into the cell. Uh, currently, a number of these Janus kinase inhibitors and uh, several TIC2 inhibitors, and we, we got a little bit of data from some of the first of these trials that were starting to look interesting at ULAR in Copenhagen this year. So what I want to say about the TIC2 inhibitor that we're going to be talking about is that it actually um, seems to have its major impact on two of these receptors. One is the interferon alpha-beta receptor. Wait a minute, didn't I say anaphrolimab works there? 
Yes, I did, but anifrolumab works on the receptor itself. And this TIC2 inhibitor that we're going to talk about actually works on the little protein on the inside that helps transduce the signal that's coming in from the interferon alpha beta receptor. So you might say, well, you can't really give this along with anifrolumab because it would be redundant, right? Well, no, because it also works on another uh, very important key receptor, um, which transduces signals from interleukin 12 and 23, which are actually um, potentially very important to um, definable subsets of lupus patients. So it sort of overlaps, but is not the same as anifrolumab. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about some data coming in from one of the first Janus kinase inhibitors, um, which... Baricitinib, uh, which um, actually affects um, Janus kinase or JAK1 and 2, may be affected by that drug. So, the appreciation of cytokines as key drivers of, of immune pathology um, has really sort of blossomed. And um, it, it's important to sort of think about these, these JAK inhibitors because we've got a whole bunch of them and they do different things. The earlier ones um, will target two or three different Janus kinase inhibitors, but we have some newer ones that are a little more selective. And the TIC2 inhibitor, if you sort of saw that TIC2 kind of acts like a Janus kinase inhibitor, it's sort of in the same um, functional group in terms of what it does, although it does it at slightly different places and slightly different combinations, uh, gave us um, one of our earliest very selective inhibitors of one of these kinases. Um, and when the Janus kinase inhibitors that, that are not affecting TIC2 um, are um, considered, um, there is a lot of toxicity, and there is some thought that this could be because of their low-level lo activity against TIC2, which, relatively speaking, does not affect as many um, uh, parts of the body. So the data from baricitinib, which is an inhibitor of JAK1 and JAK2, or Janus kinase 1 and 2, um, was a little bit of a disappointment. And this was presented at the Copenhagen meeting just uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, baricitinib has seemed pretty effective for some diseases. It's approved for atopic dermatitis and rheumatoid arthritis, and has recently been approved for severe COVID-19 in hospitalized patients with a respiratory uh, impairment. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty useful drug in a lot of places, but our first results from phase three trials in lupus were somewhat disappointing. Uh, actually, in one of the studies called BRAVE-1, uh, which involved 505 patients, um, there was some difference and some uh, increased proportion of patients who responded to baricitinib by that same uh, SRI4 endpoint, uh, but it was a sort of a not a great, um, exciting p-value, uh, but it was, you know, it could be considered cl um, clinically and statistically significant, but maybe not impressive. In the Braves 2 study, uh, the primary endpoint was not met. And then though the really bad news is that none of the secondary endpoints that were pre-specified as, as, you know, in a, in, a, in a descending order for Brave 1 or Brave 2 studies were met. Uh, although in the BRAVE-1 study, if you um, sorted out um, just a response in the mucocutaneous and musculoskeletal systems as measured by the SLEDA, uh, there was some difference between treatment and placebo.
uh, but that was not one of the higher-up secondary endpoints. Now, remember that TIC2 and JAK1, 2, and 3 are not the same molecule, even though they have functional similarities uh, in how they transduce signals in the cell. Um, uh, and the other sort of important thing to think about is that the TIC2 inhibitor that I'm about to talk to you about, um, which is called ducravacitinib, um, is an allosteric inhibitor. So instead of hitting the active site and kind of competing with um, the uh, ATB binding site, it actually just modulates the protein so it won't transduce the signal, which means if the... Uh, if this, if this um, kinase is already engaged at its active site, uh, the drug might still work. This is all a theoretical advantage, and we don't know whether it's important or not, but it's kind of interesting. And I think as time goes by, we may be able to learn more about whether this is, is key. Seems like a good idea, of course. So allosteric inhibition of uh, a specific protein is more specific. So this this drug is less likely to hit other proteins with similar uh, kinds of structures because it's, it actually is, is not hitting at a common kind of binding site. Um, and there is the theoretical idea that this might allow for modulation rather than elimination of kinase activity. And we'd really like to be able to dial our drugs up and down rather than uh, just to blast away their, the, the efficacy at a certain receptor. And uh, again, uh, as I said before, this treatment, at least in theory, should work even when the endogenous ligand uh, has been bound. So it is known that ducravacitinib has about 100-fold greater cell activity for a TIC2 than for the JAKs, uh, uh, and, and even more selectivity for TIC2 uh, than for one of the JAKs called JAK2, which is one of the ones that was targeted by um, the other treatment that we just discussed, baricitinib. And then, as I mentioned before, the selectivity of TIC2 inhibition seems to only involve the immune system whereas uh, JAK inhibition may affect blood cell development, metabolic activity, bone development, and lipid metabolism. And so this could translate into a safer drug. Decravacitinib um, is in phase two development for inflammatory bowel disease, and I'm going to show you in a minute results from a phase two trial in lupus. It's already in phase three trials for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. So this is a, a drug that is on the move for development for several diseases. Here are the results that were presented at the ULAR meeting in Copenhagen for the Paisley study, which was a phase two study of ducravacitinib in active lupus. Uh, the design of the study was pretty simple. About 90 patients per group are received either and randomly received either placebo or three different doses of ducravacitinib. Um, so the lowest dose was 3 milligrams of BID. Keep that in mind. That's the lowest dose. Otherwise, the trial was designed fairly similarly to many of the more recent successful lupus trials. And key points are that um, patients were um, really screened and scrutinized very carefully for being qualified at entry by experts and that the scoring on the instruments was scrutinized by experts. and uh, 
and the tapering of steroids, background therapy, was was uh, really important. You know, an important part of the trial and and queried and and watched so that no one would forget to taper the steroids. What happens when you taper steroids is you're able to lower the placebo response rate. Uh, and of course, once a patient doesn't meet the primary endpoint, they can be treated. Uh, so it's not mean. It actually uh, sorts out whether a drug is effective or not a lot better than if you don't taper the steroids. So here are the, here's the result of the uh, primary endpoint, which again was that SRI4 response. The SLEED-A gets better, the byline doesn't get worse, the physician does not think the patient is much worse. Those are the, the criteria for meeting this endpoint. You can see that the placebo response rate was 34.4% at week 32. That's very low for lupus. And that's good because now we can see whether or not the drug works. Now, the other thing you're going to notice is that the lowest dose did the best. Uh, there was also a statistically significant response in the second, uh, the medium dose, and the highest dose did the worst. What does this mean? Uh, well, I think it means several things. It means that in the immune system, uh, if you've found your minimally effective dose, you might not do any better giving greater doses. And so you obviously want to find your minimally effective dose to avoid side effects, but you also want to find your minimally effective dose because we frequently see lower doses in lupus doing better than higher doses. Now, many people believe that that's just, just the way things go, and maybe they all really worked about the same because it would be no difference statistically between the low dose and the two higher doses. It's just that they have different you know, impact versus placebo. Uh, and I have the bias, and I am biased, that I think that probably uh, the good Lord does not play dice with immunology. And since we see this a lot in lupus, and since we know that the immune system has many feedback loops to protect itself when you start to impair it, I think there is a such thing as too high of a dose of a given drug, and you will get a feedback that will cause uh, people not to do so well. Uh, by maybe increasing some other aspect of the immune system. Now, I have no data to show you that that's what happened here, so you can't write that down and put it on a test. But it's a thought, and I think it's an important thought to think about as we begin to learn more about these uh, treatments, and, and, and it'll give us a way to study them in a little bit more depth in the future. The good thing about this trial is that it met all of its secondary endpoints. Um, so it met the SRI4 at week 48. It met the Bicla endpoint, which means that your bilag got better and your sleet A didn't get worse and your other organs on the bilag didn't get worse and the physician didn't think you were worse. In some ways, this is a more stringent endpoint than the SRI4 because all organs have to get better on this one. It can't just get there with dropping a certain number of points on the sleet A. Um, but in some ways, it's less stringent because you can have improvement on the bilite without the symptom completely going away uh, as, you, as you need for any improvement on the sleeting. Also, a measurement that's quite stringent called the lupus low disease activity score uh, showed a significant difference. And similarly, you're seeing that that lower dose is doing the best, just like in the primary endpoint. So we have, a, we have something that's consistent going on here. Adverse events were not very troubling. Um, so this is just showing you the adverse events occurring in greater than 5% of patients. Um, and what you can see is that we, uh, we have some more infections, but really nothing terribly serious. 
and nothing untoward compared to other lupus clinical trials. So there's active development of kinase inhibitors for lupus, and these are oral, so that's an advantage. They're small molecule and highly bioavailable treatments. If we could have a better understanding of immunologic subsets of lupus and the therapeutic effects of various JAK-TIG, BTK inhibitors, uh, we didn't talk much about BTK inhibitors, but they haven't been very successful so far, but there's more to learn as time goes by. Uh, this may help to optimize clinical trial designs, treatment selection in clinic, and optimal dosing. For now, we do have an allosteric TIC2 inhibitor that is demonstrated markedly consistent efficacy and safety in a phase two trial. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash XJG860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb.